Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we speak with members of Clergy for Black Lives who give their response to the implications for their congregations and wider communities of the armed and violent attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, as well as the threat of more violence at state capitals by Trump supporters who include a wide swath of white supremacists, Christian nationalists, and even members of law enforcement and the U.S. military. We would also speak about the lack of response by L.A. city and county officials, which then allowed COVID-19 super spreader events led by Christian nationalist Sean Foyt to take place in vulnerable communities, and also how they will mark the Martin Luther King weekend. Our guests are the Reverend Dr. Najuma Smith-Pollard and the Reverend Calvin Saltz. Also, the former First Lady of Haiti, Mildred Aristide, joins us to speak about the work of the University of the Aristide Foundation, known as UNIFA, and the hospital project being planned for the campus. Also, her thoughts as Haiti just marked the anniversary of the devastating earthquake that took place in Haiti on January 12, 2010. Madame Aristide is, of course, on the board of governors of UNIFA. For our weekly Earth Watch, indigenous campaigner Nawea is our guest to discuss the threat to the Tongass National Forest, which is the largest in- intact temperate rainforest remaining on the planet. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi held a brief ceremony officially signing the article of impeachment against President Trump shortly after the House voted in favor of it 232 to 197. Ten Republicans voted with every Democrat to impeach Trump on a charge of inciting insurrection. They included Washington Republican Dan Newhouse. The president took an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Last week, there was a domestic threat at the door of the Capitol, and he did nothing to stop it. That is why, with a heavy heart and clear resolve, I will vote yes on these articles of impeachment. Staunch Trump defender Jim Jordan of Ohio managed the impeachment debate for the Republicans. He accused Democrats of being obsessed with Trump. It's always been about getting the president no matter what. It's an obsession, an obsession that has now broadened. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy took a different tack. He said impeaching Trump on such a short time frame would be a mistake, further fanning the flames of partisan division. McCarthy suggested a vote of censure and setting up a fact-finding commission instead. But he said Trump is responsible for what happened last week. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. 
Maryland's Jamie Raskin was one of the authors of the article of impeachment. He recounted that the mob erected a gallows and chanted, hang Mike Pence and where's Nancy in reference to Nancy Pelosi. And he warned the mob may come back for more. They may have been hunting for Pence and Pelosi to stage their coup, but every one of us in this room right now could have died. As Senator Lindsey Graham said, the mob could have blown the building up they could have killed us all. And now the far right is calling for return engagement from January 17th to January 20th. They're asking the president to pardon the conspirators. Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is not ruling out that he might vote to convict President Trump following the second impeachment yesterday. McConnell wrote in a letter to Senate Republicans that, quote, I have not made a final decision on how I will vote. And I intend to listen to the legal arguments when they are presented to the Senate. But McConnell ruled out bringing senators back to start the trial before the Senate reconvenes on January 19th. That's around when Democrats will assume majority control. The U.S. Capitol and Washington, D.C. are militarized like never before, with 20,000 National Guard troops deployed to prevent danger from another armed mob in the days around the presidential inauguration. Meantime, some Democrats have requested an investigation into whether Republican lawmakers or their staff helped members of last week's mob with reconnaissance visits to the Capitol the day before the attack. The letter authored by Democrat Mickey Sherrill of New Jersey and more than two dozen others notes that lawmakers and members of their staff witnessed an extremely high number of outside groups at the Capitol on Tuesday, January 5th. They say that was unusual for several reasons, including the fact that access to the Capitol has been restricted since public tours ended in March due to the pandemic. The letter says the group that attacked the Capitol seemed to have an unusually detailed knowledge of the layout of the Capitol complex. Cheryl wants to know if Republican lawmakers aided and abetted the mob attack. I was flat on the ground as other members were calling loved ones because they thought that might be the last phone call they made. To imagine that colleagues of mine could have aided and abetted this is incredibly offensive and there's simply no way that they can be allowed to continue to serve in Congress. Cheryl spoke to MSNBC. Deprived of his Twitter platform, President Trump responded in a video after his impeachment saying he unequivocally condemns the violence that happened last week. Trump tellingly took no responsibility for incitement and did not acknowledge he lost the presidential election. President-elect Joe Biden is expected to unveil a $1.5 trillion coronavirus relief package in an address this evening. He reportedly will call for additional $1,400 payments to individuals. Biden may also lay out more details of his previously announced goal of achieving 100 million vaccinations in his first 100 days in office. The confirmed U.S. death toll from COVID-19 is nearing 385,000. It's likely to top 400,000 before Biden is inaugurated. The number of people seeking unemployment aid soared last week to 965,000. That's the most since late August, and evidence the resurgent virus has caused a new spike in layoffs. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to start off our show today by continuing our coverage of the aftermath of what took place in Washington, D.C., 
on January the 6th when the U.S. Capitol was overrun. Also, there is now the threat of more violence at all 50 state capitals by Trump supporters, which include white supremacists, Christian nationalists, members of law enforcement, and the U.S. military. And we're also going to talk about uh, some reaction to super spreader events um, held by Christian nationalist Sean Foyt uh, in Southern California, as well as uh, some events marking the Martin Luther King Day weekend. But we're going to start off our coverage uh, before we welcome our guests with a clip from CNN about Two Americas. If black people had rushed the Capitol in the same way that we saw, there would have been a bloody massacre. I think what the events of this week have shown us is that there have always been multiple Americas. The way the insurrectionists were treated by the police, they were literally coddled. They were literally given permission and a kind of white privileged opportunity to trash our Capitol. In some ways, it sets a reality for where we are as a country. I think you hear so many times when you see events like this, oh, this is not who we are as a country. This is not who we are. Well, at some point, after you've said that over and over again, maybe it's time to acknowledge this is who we are as a country, and we can now start from this point to move forward. You know, for so many of us in this country, we know what it is to be treated differently. And we also know what it is to be told that all of the things that we experience every single day don't exist, or that if they do exist, that it's our own fault, that we somehow created the conditions of inequality. No one can tell me that if had been a group of Black Lives Matter protesting yesterday, there wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been treated very, very differently. The difference between treatment of white insurrectionists versus Black Lives Matter protesters. It's not merely a matter of white privilege on the back end, it's a matter of white supremacy on the front end. I tweeted the comparison between the way the insurrectionists were treated in the nation's capital and the way NAACP protests were treated when we protested in a senator's office in Mobile, Alabama. We were cuffed, ultimately put into jail, and had to go to court in order to secure our liberty. What we saw unfold at the Capitol was not just hypocrisy, it was a manifestation of power that has been entrenched since the beginning of this nation. So much of what I saw was dismay and disbelief from my neighbors and people in my community, people who I do political work with, but a lot of those people were white. And I have to say that um, this note this way, as if it was an aberration or an anomaly, is only news to people for whom the rigged rules in this country don't apply to. When my team and I were in Minneapolis, we were handcuffed for much less than people literally breaking into the United States Capitol. And when you put those images side by side, you can't help but notice a huge, a huge difference in disparity. These people clearly are emboldened. Uh, they don't feel any urgency to move. And the real question here, Jake, is when is law enforcement going to show up in force to try to get these people out? So when you look at the images of people running around the Capitol with blatantly racist signs and affiliations and the symbolism of seeing someone walk through the United States Capitol with a Confederate flag, 
again, seemingly untouched by law enforcement, at the very least sends a message to the black community that your protests and your needs are gonna be met with more pushback than what we saw as domestic terrorism in our United States Capitol. The insurrectionists marched not into Mobile, Alabama, but into the nation's capital. They trashed the capital, they vandalized the capital, and literally, out of hundreds and hundreds of people who stormed the capital, a little over 50 were arrested hours after. With all the work that many felt was done after the summer of 2020 on the lives, unfortunately, of people like Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and at least the shooting of Jacob Blake, there's still more work to be done. In order for us to get to the America that we long for, the America that we hope for, the America that we imagine in our minds, it's quite critical that we begin to undo those rigged rules that allow some people to operate with impunity and other people to be punished simply for breathing. All righty, there you go. And I'd like to uh, welcome our guest. I'd like to uh, welcome Dr. Najuma Smith-Pollard, Program Manager of the University of Southern California, Cecil Murray Center for Community Engagement. She is also a pastor and author, life coach, radio personality, and community activist. Reverend Dr. Najuma Smith-Pollard, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. It is such an uh, honor to be here with you this morning. Thank you so very much for having me. I'd also like to welcome the Reverend Calvin Souls, born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, he has spent um, several decades, it seems, of ordained ministry. He has served both local churches and general agencies in the United Methodist Church. He was the senior pastor for many years of Holman United Methodist Church. He is part of Clergy for Black Lives. Reverend Calvin Souls, welcome. Margaret, so good to be with you. All righty. Let's start out first off uh, by getting your reaction. Um, uh, Reverend Smith Pollard, we'll start with you to what you heard in that clip and, and the, mm. the, the two Americas, your reaction to what happened, but also the ongoing threats because there were some people also beat up uh, by Trump supporters, uh, two black people by in, in downtown Los Angeles, Reverend Smith Pollard. Yes, thank you. Uh, my initial reaction was not one of shock. I think by and large, especially when you talk about African-American leadership, those who are fully engaged in civic engagement and community work, we were not surprised by the attack, appalled but not surprised, because white supremacy is always fought very hard to maintain power. And what we do know that this election was a sign that there's a shifting in power on, a, on several different fronts. And so white supremacy has always been willing to kill and assassinate, murder, destroy people, buildings, communities to maintain power. We see that historically in communities that were thriving where white supremacists, Klan members, would, would, were willing to burn down entire communities so that those that they deemed unworthy of a good life or a prosperous life would not ascend or gain any power. 
So we weren't surprised, appalled, but not surprised. And the right, ongoing and, and threats. Uh-huh. Carry on. And, I was gonna say, and, and the ongoing threats, similarly, are not a surprise. They're appalling. And that's why you have faith leaders, community leaders, activists across this nation giving redress, calling on our leadership to do what needs to be done. We're just beginning with the impeachment of Donald Trump and then, you know, on down the line. Right. And, and Reverend Calvin Saltz, I mean, born and raised in South Africa, you had to face down and, and uh, fight against apartheid. And now here you are in the United States doing the kind of uh, community justice work that you are. Your reaction to what happened and to the ongoing threat? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, Reverend uh, Smith Pollard used the word appalling. I want to use the word affirmation. Uh, I think what happened, you know, on the U.S. Capitol was an affirmation, you know, of how uh, in so many ways, you know, um, you know, white evangelicals engage in an assault with a deadly religion, uh, because that is the, you know, uh, Christianity that we saw displayed there. Uh, that was the Christianity that we experienced in South Africa uh, under apartheid, really this fusion you know, uh, of an ideology of white supremacy and a theology of white supremacy. So we ought to be clear uh, that this movement, you know, uh, that is, you know, uh, about um, uh, white supremacy is also a religious movement, and it has manipulated, uh, it has um, um, uh, in so many ways, you know, conquered, you know, uh, Christianity you know, to facilitate, you know, just this ideology, you know, of anti-blackness, this ideology of anti-Semitism, this ideology of racism, you know, uh, that uh, has become their worldview, you know, uh, around, you know, nationalism, you know, uh, and just uh, many, many ways of othering, you know, uh, people of color uh, in so many ways. So, so that's, that's, you know, I've uh, uh, seen this before. I mean, when we were negotiating, for instance, you know, uh, the democratic constitution uh, for South Africa to uh, finally arrive at a multiracial democracy in South Africa, there was also uh, a storming of the convention center by, you know, uh, uh, white, uh, uh, you know, evangelicals, you know, uh, to stop that process. Uh, from moving forward, the the the, the Afrikaner Western, you know, uh, 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 that movement, you know. Uh, so what I saw, you know, uh, on January the sixth, was just, you know, uh, what I saw in South Africa as well. But Margaret, let's not let's be clear, you know, uh, this is not the first time that something like this uh, happened. Uh, uh, in 1878, in Wilmington, North Carolina, there was actually a successful you know, uh, insurrection that took place, you know, uh, because of a multiracial coalition that was built there by both, you know, uh, elected officials, you know, uh, in that thriving, you know, black community of Wilmington, you know, North Carolina. So, uh, um, uh, so basically, you know, what happened on January the 6th was an assault with a deadly religion.
Right, and uh, Reverend uh, Smith uh, Pollard, I mean, certainly uh, Pastor Souls um, referred to the phrase assault with a deadly religion. One can go back to um, the time of the Crusades. You could go back to the conquest of the Americas um, where and the papal bulls that basically justified the... Um, genocide against indigenous people and also justified the enslavement of people um, of from the continent of African descent. Uh, and, you know, the Poor People's Campaign talks about the distorted moral narrative. And Reverend Smith yes. Pollard, it does seem as though there really is a great um, rupture or a fight or split going on among um, people who consider themselves Christians today because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the other thing that happened recently is this Christian nationalist, Sean Foyt, uh, descended yeah. on L.A. And, and passed a queue of the church with open walls, talked about him assaulting Skid Row, an overwhelmingly black community, with a deadly yeah. virus because they yeah. they resist any virus restrictions. They don't wear masks. Uh, and yeah. they were coming into Skid Row, laying their hands on, on people. And now COVID-19 has spiked in Skid Row. Um, yeah. Reverend Smith Pollard. Yeah, yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna actually quote Pastor Q. It, it, he didn't write it, but he said it in one of his live streams. He says, "You can't save people and kill people at the same time." And so, when you are the what Sean Foyt posted um, and led um, is is you know all in the name of Jesus, all in the name of religion and salvation. You cannot some, come to me with your religion. So I think, I think the term deadly religion is far beyond appropriate because you can't come to me and say, I want to save you, but I'm also giving you something that'll kill you. Or I could potentially give you something that'll kill you. And again, this is not anything new. This is a, a remix of what colonizers have done. This is a remix of what white supremacists has, have done. This is a remix of what racism does in our nation and around the world. And so these are not new activities. They are remixes. And Sean Foyt was under the impression that he could come to downtown L.A. here in Skid Row, where we fight continuously to keep our brothers and sisters safe and alive, that he was going yeah. to bring his deadly religion down here for free. And Absolutely. And Pastor Souls, um, we just literally have a, a few minutes left, and we know there are two things. I mean, apparently, LA City Council on Wednesday uh, moved to. Uh, according to the LA Times, ramp up enforcement of requirements that people wear masks in public to reduce the spread of coronavirus. You think they would have done that before Sean Foyt descended on us. But I just want to, you to quickly share with our audience um, the plans for clergy for black lives uh, for this coming Martin Luther King weekend, because you have an important event happening this Sunday. Please tell us about that before we have to wrap up. Yes, looking forward to it. Thanks, Mother. Let me just quickly say that uh, we have, because I, I think we have to say something about the response of law enforcement. We have to just be clear that we cannot. Disparity in law enforcement is a threat to democracy. We cannot treat, you know, uh, um, white violence as protest and black protest as violence. As violence. Mm -hmm. That's exactly. very, very important because we've seen that. Uh, we're coming together as Clergy for Black Lives, you know, uh, on uh, Sunday uh, to engage in what we call the Radical King. 
Uh, it is part of our commitment to engage in sacred resistance, you know, uh, to really look at the life and legacy of Dr. King from a radical uh, perspective, that perspective that is about a spirituality of mutuality grounded uh, in, you know, uh, uh, racial justice and racial equity, and uh, uh, that is about the politics of love. Uh, that's why I wear a mask, because it is about love. I love myself and I love my neighbor. You know, uh, exactly. so we're coming together and we're going to look at the life and legacy of Dr. King. You know, uh, 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 we're going to start off in Skid Row, you know, uh, that morning. Um, and, and then from there, we're going to do a car caravan from Skid Row to Lamert Park to connect, you know, uh, these two communities. Uh, we have uh, uh, awesome and exciting speakers that are going to focus on different aspects of uh, Dr. King. We're going to focus on, you know, uh, Dr. King uh, and the, uh, uh, the arts and the culture and, and how that was, you know, utilized. Uh, what would Dr. King say right now to what's happening? We're going to look at Dr. King and poverty and the Poor People's Campaign, uh, look at Dr. King and prophetic black women, you know, uh, look at Dr. King in a global context, uh, Dr. King... Uh, connecting uh, uh, who he was with Black Lives Matter, Dr. King and mass incarceration, uh, medical apartheid. So we're going to just really uh, connect, you know, uh, and amplify the radical King because in so many ways, Margaret, what we see happening in our culture and in our society is a sanitized, a watered-down version of Dr. King. You know, right. uh, he was an inconvenient hero, as you know. Uh, and the reason for that is because he uh, had the boldness to speak truth to power, you know, uh, in love. And so that's what we're looking forward to on uh, on Sunday to kick off, you know, uh, the King the King Week. And that's uh, we right. have awesome speakers, you know, uh, to uh, to join in with us. Okay, I'm afraid we're out of time. We are going to have to end it there. But for people who want to get uh, information about it, the L.A. Community Action Network, their um, Facebook page, website, I'm sure, has information on it as well. We're also posting information on Radical King. It's the right time to do the right thing. Clergy for Black Lives with SCLC and Health Matters, they're going to be doing some COVID testing, health screening, PPE supply giveaway, and much more down in Skid Row, uh, starting at 11 in the morning, leaving for Lamert Park at 1.30 p.m. Uh, well, Dr. Najim, uh, Najuma Smith-Pollard, Pastor Calvin Souls, thank both of you so very much for your thank work you. and for joining us today. Thank you so Thanks very so much, much for having us. Thanks so much, Margaret. Take care. All righty. We are quickly going to move on now to our weekly Earth Watch. The Tongass National Forest, the largest intact temperate rainforest remaining on our planet, it spans 500 miles across southeast Alaska, making it about the size of the state of West Virginia. It is the home to over 400 wildlife species, which includes some of the largest populations of bears, eagles, and wolves on the continent. And the Tongass National Forest is also part of the home of the indigenous uh, 
Lindit people. For over hundreds, if not thousands of years, they've carried out cultural and spiritual practices in the forest. Many receive ancestral foods and medicines from the forest, but today the forest is under threat. On October 29, 2020, the outgoing administration of Donald Trump exempted the Tongas from the hard-fought 2001 roadless rule. Uh, we're going to find out more about what all of this is about, and I'd like to welcome uh, Nawaya, who is Lingit, Cherokee, Filipino, and English. He is a basket weaver, a screen printer, musician, language learner, and teacher. Uh, he was born and raised in Juneau, Alaska. He cares deeply about language revitalization, indigenous sovereignty, gender and climate justice, and ending gender-based uh, violence. Um, uh, Naweya, welcome. Hello. All righty. So great so, to be here Thank you. Thank you, Noea. So in the time that we have left, um, tell us why you are opposed to and concerned about uh, what is being proposed for Tongass National Forest and the impact on your people. Yeah, well, for sure, you know, I, I was listening to the conversation you were just having, and um, I think, you know, uh, it made me think about, you know, in what ways is this related to white supremacy? And um, I think there's a clear line because, uh, for me, this whole process was initiated by the governor of Alaska. And despite, you know, adamant, um, uh, you know, despite tribes being adamantly against this, you know, numerous tribes um, have come out against the, the rule change and saying that, you know, we as the indigenous people of this place would like to have these protections maintained. Um, you know, these these government administrations have gone ahead um, and disrespected, you know, tribal sovereignty. And um, and to, to me, it's it is like, you know, almost a I mean, this may this I don't know. It's like almost a form of genocide. Right. Because our culture is so, inter, you know, so interwoven into this landscape and um I mean, you know, I would like to quote, you know, one of my elders who also does work around the Tongass. Her name is um, Wanda Culp, and she says about the forest, its DNA is my DNA. You know, like, my people have lived here since time immemorial, you know, in our oral histories. That's what we talk about. We've been here always. And so it, um, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like when you take away the forest, you take away an integral piece of our culture and um, who we are, and the the foods we eat, and you know, uh, yeah, it's a reciprocal relationship. Absolutely, and and we know that in a lot of indigenous cultures in the Americas, but also in other uh, parts of the world, uh, trees and and nature and the forests are uh, very important and, and considered very spiritual. And there isn't a connection. I think in in the Amazon. Uh, region, for example, there are some indigenous tribes there that don't make a distinguish in their language, the words they use to describe themselves and the forest. That uh, you see it as as one entity. So, uh, Nawaya, here you have uh, Trump opening up more than nine million acres, including vital old growth trees, to industrial road building, logging. And mining, and some of those trees are as old as 
800 years old. So tell us what uh, you are hoping would happen now. I mean, there is a new administration uh, coming in, and will there be a push uh, for the uh, Biden-Harris administration to reverse what Donald Trump has done? Nawea. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of hope that the Biden administration will do something. You know, if Biden wants to be a president who's strong on climate, then we cannot, you know, engage in old-growth forest logging and, and in logging on an industrial scale at all. Because, you know, we have to the – car, the, the carbon sink that is the Tongass must be maintained if we're going to, you know, do the 30 by 30 thing, um, which is um, protecting 30 percent of lands by 2030. Um, and uh, – and so there's a lot of hope, you know, that the Congressional Review Act might be used to change this rule. But then um, also this week uh, was the 20th anniversary of the, um, of the roadless rule. And uh, there's a, uh, there was a bill introduced um, in, this, in Congress called the Roadless, Conservation, roadless Area Conservation Act. And so there's a lot of, ho- you know, a lot of hope since, you know, we won Georgia. Um, that, you know, Congress will be favorable to um, creating permanent protection for these roadless areas, because right now the roadless rule is sort of um, uh, an administrative rule and not legislated. Right. And and your reaction, are you hoping that uh, Deb Haaland, who is Biden-Harris um, named as part of their administration, I think Department of Interior, but it's the first time that has happened. And are you hoping or expecting or will push her uh, to ensure that there have been so many attacks? I mean, there's Tongass, but indigenous lands have been so under attack. Um, always, it seems, but uh, a big push in the last decades. Just some final thoughts from you, uh, Nawea. Yeah, I was really um, glad to see Deb um, Holland to uh, be, be appointed. You know, that especially Department of the Interior um, uh, it really affects Native American people. You know, we are some of the most heavily legislated groups of people on you know, in this country, um, the federal government has all sorts of influence over our lives. And so I think it's really important that um, a Native person is in a place of power in those systems. Because, you know, up until now, there's no, no one in, those, in that position has ever had experience of what it's like to be on the other end of federal rulemaking, you know. Right. And for people who want to find out a bit more about these efforts, by the way, I'd like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them for our weekly Earth Watch. What would you suggest, uh, Nawea, for people to do? Um, Well, you can write your legislators um, in Congress and make sure that they know that this uh, matters to you and that you want to protect the Tongass National Forest and that you um, believe that the process should uh, have respected indigenous rights and sovereignty. And, um, and you can also um, uh, find out more. Um, there's a number of organizations who do work on this, uh, but a really great place to look is seac.org, which is S-E-A-C-C dot org, which is the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, and they'll have a lot of great information on, um, 
on things you can do to help with the Tongass. And then you can also look, um, uh, you know, find my org, uh, Native Movement, on Facebook or Instagram. And we don't only do work around the Tongass. That's, you know, one of the things that we work on. But uh, we'll also share information on the Tongass, too. Well, all the best to you, uh, Noea. Thank you so very much for joining us, and thank you for your work. Thank you so much. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break. And coming up, um, we are delighted to welcome the former First Lady of Haiti, uh, Madame Mildred Adesti, talking about um, something positive happening in in Haiti, the work of the University of the Adesti Foundation, known as UNIFA, and exciting news about a new hospital that um, they want to build on the campus so stay with us we'll be right back Paul and Silas bound in jail uh-huh. had no money for the gold to bail but keep your eyes on the prize hold on Eyes on the Prize by Sweet Honey in the Rock. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotruradio.org where there are videos. There's a fantastic community calendar, lots of articles. Our handle on Twitter and Instagram at sotruradio. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud today. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners on indigenous lands uh, throughout the Americas, indigenous lands throughout the Americas. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the UK, (laughs) the United Kingdom. Uh, We are now going to turn our attention uh, to Haiti. Those of you who are regular listeners of Sojourner Truth, you know we do uh, try our best to keep you up to date with what is happening on the ground in Haiti. Indeed, our Sojourner Truth team, myself, our assistant producer, Romero Funes, we have been there uh, several times and Uh, produced videos and letting you know politically what is happening on the ground and and reporting what uh, about the massive protests that have been going on um, for quite some time now on the ground in Haiti. And while we know um, the government of Haiti, the present government, um, is broken, its people and grassroots movements are absolutely not. So we want to focus today on some positive news uh, coming out of Haiti. In 2001, the Aristide Foundation for Democracy broke ground on the construction of Haiti's largest medical school, the University of the Aristide Foundation, known as UNIFA. Now, Haitian, Cuban, and European physicians, as well as physicians from the United States, have supported this initiative. It's a collaboration made possible by um, 
the restored diplomatic relations between Haiti and Cuba, for example, beginning in the late 1990s, Cuba sent doctors uh, to Haiti and opened its medical schools to Haitian students. And the Aristide Foundation took this corporation one step further by opening the medical school, initially a medical school, UNIFA, where Cuban and other medical professors trained Haitian doctors in Haiti. And for decades, UNIF has played a pivotal role in fulfilling the medical needs of the most vulnerable. And you might recall at the, the time of the the U.S.-backed coup against um, democratically elected uh, President Aristide. President Aristide, Madame Aristide, their children were uh, basically kidnapped, forced uh, out of uh, Haiti, the Central African Republic. We just had Congresswoman Maxine Waters on the air, uh, I think it was yesterday, Maxine Waters went to the Central African Republic and made sure um, that uh, they were, they got out of there safely. And President Aristide when he returned to Haiti as a result of such a huge movement on the ground in Haiti and internationally pressing for his um, uh, return, one of the things he said he would focus on is um, education. And indeed, he has been true to his word. And before welcoming uh, Madame Aristide, I'd like to go to a very short clip now on the background on UNIFA. President Jean-Bertrand Aristide returned to Haiti in 2011, determined to reopen UNIFA, to carry out his vision of providing a human rights-based model of education as the building block for effective change. UNIFA provides a safe environment for critical thinking, where young people gain the skills and knowledge to lead their country forward. UNIFA is unique in its commitment to break down social, economic, and gender barriers to higher education. Students receive a superior education for less tuition than other local private universities. A certain number of scholarships are granted to high school students with top grades throughout Haiti and provides a dormitory for students living in the outskirts. More than half of the students are young women. Matriculated students are encouraged to put their new knowledge at the service of poor communities. In fall of 2017, UNIFA's law school is launching a civic education program in the community to teach about rule of law and citizens' rights. Medical, nursing, and physical therapy students volunteer on a regular basis, assisting doctors and nurses at the Aristide Foundation's mobile clinic, serving thousands of local families. All righty. And I would now like to welcome uh, Madame Aristide, the former First Lady of Haiti. She is an attorney, an author, a member of the Board of Administration of the University of the Aristide Foundation, uh, known as UNIFA. Since reopening in 2011, UNIFA has graduated at least 230 new doctors, 78 new nurses, eight physiotherapists, 30 lawyers, providing young people in Haiti with the skills and knowledge to lead their country forward. And I'm not quite sure if those numbers are old, but I'm sure Madame Aristide will correct us. Uh, Madame Mildred Aristide, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret. And those numbers do not include last year's graduation. So they are have increased, so we are up to 378 doctors, 97 nurses, 
26 physical therapists, and 51 lawyers who have graduated. That is just an, an amazing uh, accomplishment in, in such a short time, Madam Adestide. I've had the honor of attending a few of the, the graduations uh, at UNIFA, and they're like graduations that I have never seen, really, really so moving and and thousands of of Haitians it seemed they can't fit into the hall spilling out outside so proud of what you all have been able to accomplish at UNIFA so uh, tell us a little bit about what is happening now with UNIFA and also about the hospital uh, project that is underway yes well thank you very much for having me on the program this morning Margaret as we said, we've reopened in, in the setup that you you, um, you aired before I came on since we reopened in 2011 upon our return from South Africa. We've had, you know, we've made su- substantial progress. Apart from these numbers in terms of graduates, we can say that this year we have eight professional schools on top of the medical, nursing, law, physical therapy the newly added schools are dentistry, agriculture, and economic, uh, administration and economy, and um, engineering. So right now, um, our student population stands at roughly, I would say, close to 3,000. Uh, the bulk of our students are in the School of Medicine, but we have the other uh, schools, as I said. And as the world and as everyone knows, we've gone through a difficult year last year with the uh, with the pandemic also in Haiti, forcing the closing of, of the school during the second semester. Um, but we were able to continue with courses online. We do have an online platform that we developed because we knew that we would have not only the situation with the pandemic, but as you may remember, last year, last fall, there was uh, a lockdown in the country due to protests against the political situation situation which forced the closing and so we have developed a platform where students are able to do classes online so that was able to go forward and we were able to complete last year and enter this new year um you know under strain and difficulties but uh, we're very proud of our students who have persevered and our professors who were able to adapt to new learning methods um, so that's where we stand uh, in terms of the uh, campus, uh, in terms of the university this year. Yeah, and we know also, I mean, I'm not quite sure now in, in the time of COVID as this is still going on, but um, just in addition to the work happening on the campus, um, you know, your students have also, for example, the medical students, from what I understand, um, went out into the community. I mean, mobile clinics or helping mm-hmm. to, there, there's also a clinic over at the um, Adestide Foundation, the building of the Adestide Foundation, uh, help helping people who might not otherwise have access to health care, Madame Adestide. That's right. Our students, all of the students in the, um, in, the, uh, in the health services are required to participate in the mobile clinics that we do at the foundation. And, um, and additionally, for instance, you know, last week, this week, the 12th was the sad anniversary, 11th anniversary of the earthquake. And our students, not only from the health, the health services, but um, accompanied by other students, did go to one of the ten cities, which unfortunately still exists in Haiti. And these are people who who were um, who lost their homes and what homes they had, and have been 
in these tent facilities. I say facilities, but really just an encampment. And the students, um, uh, they they um, they questioned, they talked to the the, uh, the residents to see more, to learn more about the way that they were living, what caused them to be there, what they need, their needs are now. And so the students are working on this as a sort of research project and really to understand better what the challenges that are continue to be faced by people who have been made homeless by the earthquake. So this, we, partic- we encourage our students to be as active in the community as we can. We have had a, um, a law clinic program where students go to the area high schools and they do a lecture on different topics and subjects in the law just to encourage a greater understanding of, of, of topics. And that's, you know, that's, that's part of our vision is that we have to be an active member of the community as well as a university. Yeah, and you know, when the times that I've been here and and met and talking with young people, there's a lot of talk about um, what they call uh, mental decolonization, and they're quite passionate about it. And it's really uh, something to see uh, groups of of young people, I mean, discussing uh, these matters and and with such hope um, for the future, given everything that um, is happening on on the ground in in Haiti. So also, Madame Aristi, tell us a bit about the possibility of a a hospital on on the campus. Yeah, well, it's more than a possibility. It is a reality. We have dedicated (laughs) four acres of the space to the construction of the hospital. And construction has been underway for the past at least a year and a half. And you mentioned Congresswoman Waters. She was in Haiti um, spring of 2019. She, alongside Danny Glover, Walter Riley, um, and I'm thinking who else was in that delegation. But when they came in, they were able to visit and kind of help us break ground on and launch the kind of fundraising arm of the construction. But they were there. They were on site. They visited with the architect who has designed the space. And we've progressed quite, you know, quite uh, substantially since then. It's going to be on the three levels, and we've already constructed three levels. All of the um, foundation walls are in place, and we've poured the uh, reinforced cement roofing on all three levels, and that was as of about two weeks ago. So substantial work um, still yet to, to do, but we have really uh, more than the skeleton of the structure is up and, um, and is, is, is in place, and the work is continuing. And uh, as I understand, they're even working a night shift to really rapidly uh, complete the construction. And we will open in a phased way. You know, we want to have seven critical, you know, necessary services, including an emergency room, pharmacy lab, and other essential services. But we understand that we will open in a phased way so that once we have a certain section of the building ready, we can start and move forward because the need is that great. You know, we have a lot of medical, nursing, PT, and dentistry students, which means that they have to do their training. And right now, they're spread throughout throughout the country, really, doing their um, residency and internship work. We'd like for them to do that in our own teaching hospital under the supervision of our professors and our physicians um, to train them in the way that, that we want them to be trained. So the hospital project is absolutely moving forward um, and um, you know I don't want to give a timeline of when we will be complete as I said it'll be in a phased way but we are very we are doing everything on our end to, to move forward 
Right. That is so exciting. I was there at the time that you mentioned with Congresswoman Waters and Danny Glover, oh, Pierre Labossier of Haiti Action uh, Committee was always there. We, also there, we, we took some photos, et cetera, of, you know, some of the work that was, was happening there. And Congresswoman Waters, you know, lifting up the shovel and, you know, um, uh, pouring. You almost a fixture at UNIFA, so that I don't have to say that you were there too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, absolutely. But um, the thing about it, though, is that this is a, a massive project, and we mm-hmm. know what the situation is on the ground in, in Haiti. And I must say, it's just been remarkable uh, your resilience. First of all, Madame Aristide, with everything you have been through uh, with your family and uh, maintaining your work, you you work so hard. You're on the board of governors. And as Laura Flynn said in a webinar that was held last year about the hospital, there's so much that you do there, you know, from where to find the keys. And I've, I've watched you operate um, uh, there on the campus uh, wearing lots of hats, but including doing outreach uh, for support for UNIFA. And for people in the United States, particularly people who are connected with a university, with an academy, um, with a medical school, or who are in the field, um, what are some of the things you think people can do to support um, this hospital um, moving forward as quickly as possible? Because yes, it absolutely is a reality. And um, I'm sure you you support coming from the United States uh, good people in the United States would be indeed welcome, Madame Aristide. Yes, and thank you for your kind words. Before I answer that, let me say, you know, the effort that we put in, that all of the staff and the professors and the administration, you know, I think pale to the effort put in by the students. I want to give one example. Recently, my husband was speaking to one student, graduated, I think, a year or two ago, and was now working at in a town called Akaye, which is a historic town. It's the town where Haiti's flag the, um, was, was sewn back in 1803. And she is now, she's a doctor, and she's working at a clinic there, and he was speaking to her. And he said, well, how long have you been work? How long have you been in Akaye? Akaye is approximately one and a half to, uh, to two-hour drive, but that's a straight drive, from Akaye to Yifa. And she laughed, and she says, well, I've always lived in Arcaia. And he said, how? She said, even as a student, she was living at home and commuting every day to UNIFA. When I say an hour and a half drive, what if you were to have a private car and to drive straight, which is not the case for a vast majority of patients, as you know. So think about the effort that this student put in to come in every day, go home, on a road that absolutely would take her at least three hours, I would estimate, but every day putting in that effort because she knew that this is what, what she wanted. So when we see that kind of effort by our students to persevere and to pursue their studies, you know, we just have to step up to the plate. And, yes, we accept and we've always been open to um, assistance from the U.S., from, as you said, Cuba, Europe, and all. We had here from the California area, we had a professor from UC. Davis Med School, I believe, who was with us a year ago, not this past year, but a year and about a year and a half ago, who did a course, a week-long course in neurobiology. I, I don't remember the topic, but it was a topic that we were not able to offer at UNIFA, but Professor Dr. Douglas, Douglas Gross, 
was able to do the course alongside one of our professors who's completely bilingual. So they did the course for a week and a half, and we invited other area medical schools to participate in the seminar because knowing that this was a great opportunity, and so we opened it up. And that was a great, a, a great event. And that's the kind of cooperation and support that we welcome from folks. Additionally, as you mentioned, you know, we did the webinar, and so there was a really powerful fundraising that, um, that, that came from that. We also have received in the past a donation of medical uh, uh, models and um, uh, what are, um, posters and, and, and other things, computers and, and books that have come from the states that have also assisted us greatly. So, and, and teachers, you know, that uh, professor, uh, Dr. Gross, was in there for a week, but we've had folks come in for two days to come and give, you know, a short seminar on a topic or have stayed a little longer. So these are the kinds of cooperation that we encourage and that we are completely open to um, um, to to entertaining and to and to and to having uh, at UNIFA. Yeah, and and for professors and and others who might want to contribute and share their expertise, um, they don't necessarily have to now travel to Haiti because so much is happening virtually. Uh, Would you welcome participation um, by academics and people useful to the work you're doing uh, at UNIFA um, virtually as well? Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's absolutely. And as a matter of fact. One thing that we are launching this semester is an online law degree program, and we already have, there's an American professor of law based in Delaware, Delaware, Erin Daly, who has been with us for a few years, who is bilingual, and she has, she is participating as one of the, uh, one of the instructors in the online program. Now, she speaks French, but we are also very clear that we will do what it takes to do the translation and to provide 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 the tools so that the 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 instruction, even if it's in English, we can have it um, either translated or we could work through to, in order for it to happen. So right. I'm I'm afraid, Madame Aristi, time flew, and we are now out of time, but I want to really thank all of our listeners who over the years have helped to uh, make contributions towards the law school, the dental school, and and others. Hopefully, we have helped a little bit, and for those of you who are listening right now, you can go to the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund, and you could donate there uh, to assist with the hospital and the work of the UNIFA. Madame Aristide, thank you so very much for joining us and please stay well and safe. Alrighty, we're out of time. I gotta get out of here uh, quickly. I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. Um, Please stay. You can get a copy of today's show by contacting the Pacifica Radio Archives. Thank you for listening and y'all please stay safe.